Hello everybody and welcome back to the podcast. Today's chapter is going to skip chapter 22 um, and go just straight to 23. Don't worry, we are going to go back to chapter 22 in episode 9, the following episode. Um, But in this episode, we're going to discuss chapter 23, which is nation building and the transformation of the Americas, North and South. And I thought this complemented the last chapter better um, because now we're going to really talk about um, Latin America, uh, and the leaders and the revolutions there, and then how the Americas kind of transform after the revolutions and create their newly independent nations. So episode eight is going to be solely on chapter 23, but don't worry, we will cover chapter 22. So let's go ahead and dive right in to chapter 23, Nation Building and Economic Transformation in the Americas from 1800 to 1890. So we're going to begin with the roots of revolution. So the last episode, we talked about three different revolutions. We talked about the American Revolution, which was the predecessor and the kind of jumping off point for global revolutions. And then we see the next domino, of course, is the French Revolution. And while the French Revolution is occurring in the midst of the French Revolution, um, more on the Napoleonic side of the French Revolution, we have the Haitian Revolution. Um, This chapter is going to discuss another revolution, and this is the ones in Latin America. So we're going to be talking about... um, Brazil, we'll be talking about Colombia, we'll be talking about Venezuela, Mexico, Guatemala, these areas that also rise up in independence and take the opportunity to fight for their freedoms. So section one is Roots of Revolution to 1810. So there were three things that made colonists in Latin America um, upset. And those three things were the amount of power that colonial officials had over the political and economic arenas in the colonies. So these colonies are predominantly Spanish colonies. Now we do have a couple French colonies in here, but they're predominantly Spanish colonies. And similar to the United States and the British colonies, um, the European governments would put in place a representative that was loyal to the crown or loyal to the mother country. And those people would have a lot of power and have a lot of wealth and they would have a lot of pool in the colonial system. So one of the reasons wealthy colonists were upset was because they saw colonial officials having Um, favoritism and having more power and more money than they did just because they worked for the crown. Another reason the colonists, the wealthy colonists were mad was because of the increase in taxes, the high taxes um, that was imposed. And, uh, And lastly are the imperial monopolies that Spain was creating. So a monopoly is just when someone owns all of everything. A good example of this is in the United States. There were a lot of monopolies in the 1800s, particularly in the second half of the 1800s in the United States. And the U.S. isn't the only one that had monopolies. Other countries did as well. But I like to use the U.S. because it's, you know, we can relate a little bit more. So an example of this is railroads. So in the United States... 
the Vanderbilt family were a railroad family. And they had all the power of all the railroads. There were other barons, they were called, um, or gilded barons, um, gilded age barons, who had control as well. But a monopoly is just when someone owns everything. So the Vanderbilts owned all of the railroad companies. And when someone owns everything, they control everything. So a monopoly is when someone has control over all aspects of one venture or one avenue. So that's like saying someone has control of all the railroads, the production, how they work, who works there, everything. So they kind of own it so they can do what they want. They can set the prices however high they want. They could uh, make any changes. They can fire people. They can do whatever. And monopolies can be very dangerous. So we see here the crown is the crown of Spain is imposing monopolies on different things. And three actions supported why the colonists were mad. So these are actions and not ideas. As we see in the American Revolution and French Revolution, they're more kind of influenced by ideas and then actions happen. Well, in this sense, in the Latin American Revolution, we see actions are really the backbone of why there's tension. And excuse me, sorry, the three acts that supported the above grievances were the invasions of Portugal, the invasion of Spain, and legitimacy crisis. So we also see in France and in Spain that there's a crisis on who is going to be the ruler. We see the government's crazy and the country's crazy in France. Spain is not doing so hot either. Napoleon is invading Spain He's going, he's causing a lot of issues for the Spanish um, royal family. And there's legitimacy crisis. Who is really in control? Who is the legitimate ruler? So in response to all these grievances and all these crazy things that are going on in Europe, the Spanish patriots or the Spanish colonists in the New World create a new government or political body. And that's called the Junta Central uh, or the Junta Central. And this is a new political body created by patriots who were fighting Napoleon. So they were seeing that their government wasn't working. So they're like, no, we need to create something new that is going to support the people and really help us defend ourselves against these invading forces that is, that is France. So like in the American Revolution, you had loyalists to the crown and you had colonists. A loyalist is someone who completely supports 100%, loves the mother country, is really just in the new world or in the colony for economic or political gain, and most likely would probably return to the mother country. A colonist is someone who is in the new world for you know, for the good. They're going to stay there. They're raising their family. They don't plan on ever going back. They're making a new life for themselves. So that's basically a very simplified difference or, you know, explanation of the two. So loyalists um, are the old world's leaders in the new world. So those would be like your um, imperial officials or colonial officials. And then the colonists are the new world leaders, you know. So basically a majority of the population were loyalists and the colonists were those that were very wealthy and they had power um, and they objected to a lot of the things that the crown was trying to impose.
So moving on to a more specific region, um, South America and Spain's predicament. And this is between the years of 1810 and 1825. So a 15-year period of what's going on in the Spanish colonies. So the first real revolution we see in Latin America or in the Spanish colonies is in Venezuela. Venezuela, um, their revolution starts with the colonists. Similar to um, the American Revolution, it is started by the colonial-born whites. So the white population really starts this in Venezuela. That is different than in Haiti, where it was um, started by the Gen de Couleur, remember the mixed race population. So initially, we see that um, the leadership of the revolution in Venezuela defended slavery, because slavery was throughout the Spanish um, colonies, and they defended it. And they opposed the citizenship of Africans. So they didn't agree that Africans should be free or that they should be citizens. And this would later on change later on. Um, but we'll talk about that later. Um, why and when did they start this revolution? Well, they started this revolution in 1811. And they were really kind of upset with just the chaos that was going on in Europe. And they didn't believe or have confidence in the leadership of their country or of their colony, not their country. And they wanted to fight for equality um, within society, better taxes, better reforms for wealthy white settlers. One man comes onto the playing field. His name is um, Simon Bolivar. And he is kind of like the George Washington of um, of La- the Latin America Revolution. He's like kind of the poster child of this. And he is the leader. And he kind of gained his ideas. And he, I don't want to say stole because he adopted them. He adopted his ideas from reading classic Enlightenment works, taking um, numbers from the American Revolution, specifically the framers of the Constitution, really looking at these Enlightenment ideas and trying to apply them to his own situation in his country. Um, His background was in the military, so he was a military leader, worked his way up in the ranks, very similar to Napoleon. Remember, Napoleon was a soldier, worked his way up to general, and then became the leader of the New New France. Um, And he was one of those supporters of emancipation. So he supported emancipation of the slaves, so he believed in the freeing the slaves. Um, But he also believed that if you are a colonist and you are loyal to the colony you need to fight and support this so he believed in forced conscription meaning forced military service like you didn't have a choice you were in the military if you were of age and a male um how did he feel about emancipation like previously stated he did not support it um and felt that africans were not equals and that they should remain in slavery. And I'm 100% sure that even though he believed in it or he supported emancipation later on, he probably still did not see Africans as equal um, because that is a difference between supporting emancipation and equality. They're totally two different things. So don't 
get the idea confused that if someone supports emancipation, they are not racist because that is totally different. Like you can support people not being enslaved, but you could still be racist and think they are not equal to you or that you are more superior. So don't just automatically assume that just because they support getting rid of slavery that they are not racist because that is a that's a misconception that a lot of people tend to just associate oh they don't want slavery anymore they must not be racist no that does not mean anything most of the time it's alternative motives of why they support emancipation um so initially uh bolivar did not support it but he changed his mind because he needed fighters and he was like well these people if i free them they'll support me and they could help me fight so that's what he did he decided to um enlist the recently freed slaves for his revolution so what to do with the spaniards in venezuela so Bolivar kind of gave them an option. Either they were going to fight on the side of the colonists for independence or they were going to be seen as enemies to the cause and that they would be imprisoned, tried, and punished predominantly either, you know, imprisoned for life or until they died or executed. So we do see that Bolivar is successful in his fight for independence with the other Spanish colonists and how he how he won was enlisting um, and demobilizing the British troops. So the British were in the Caribbean already, you know, because they have colonies there and they have stakes there. And they saw this as an opportunity for them to gain more land because of the chaos that was going going on in um, Spain and in France. That they were going to try and take over these little colonies. So Bolivar... I was like, no, this is not going to happen. So he demobilized the British that were trying to invade. And, or hold on, sorry, I read this wrong. <laughs> I saw demobilized as something else. Um, he did not, that's a different, That's a, I was getting confused. Sorry, scratch that. So how did Bolivar win? He enlisted the help of British troops. So I was thinking about um, the Haitian Revolution, I'm sorry. Um So Bolivar saw these recent British veterans in the region, you know, still they were in the Caribbean because they had colonies there. But Bolivar decided to enlist these troops, these veterans, these British veterans into his fight um, because, you know, they've already fought against an an imperial power and they kind of know and they're already trained. So why not use their talents to his advantage? So he won with the help of the British. Um, So that's that one. Sorry, I had a confusing confusing moment there. Um, so we do see there's a power change, um, in Spain after the win of independence, the colonists forced Ferdinand to sign a constitutional monarchy, um, basically what England has where the, um, the powers of the king are limited and it predominantly is run by the parliament. Um, and what happened in 1824? Well, this is when the last Spanish armies were defeated by the, um, patriots, And after this happens, we see the creation of the Gran Colombia. And the Gran Colombia is a consolidation of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador. So these three regions or these three colonies kind of come together to create this uh, regional alliance together. Uh, Jose de San Martin, um, what did he do with Bolivar? So Jose de San Martin 
um, was the independent leader or the kind of the revolutionary leader of um, Chile and Argentina. So while this is going on in Venezuela, we also see an independence movement uh, starting in Chile and Argentina. And San Martin kind of takes control of the movement in those two regions. And he asks for Bolivar's advice initially, and initially he's doing really well until he's not, and he is really struggling. So what he ends up doing is surrendering the command to Bolivar, and Bolivar really kind of helps to finish the job in Chile and Argentina. So he, San Martin was not as skilled as Bolivar was. So moving on to Mexico, so north of uh, South and Central America, um, and Mexico is starting to have a little independence movement of its own. So in 1810 to 1823, we see this revolution against Spain, um, as well as the French encroachment. So the number one raw material in, in Mexico for Spain was silver. Silver has been the number one resource in Mexico since the colonization of the Spanish in the 1400s, late 1400s, 1500s. Silver has always been the high commodity for, for uh, Mexico. And the revolution in Mexico starts for four reasons. One, you have the weakening of colonial power. So the Spanish were losing their kind of prestige and their um, dominance in the world. So we see that transfer into the colonial power system as well. Um, We also see that native lands are being encroached upon by... The Spanish colonists, and that is an, another constraint that the colonists are seeing, that they're not being allowed to expand like we saw in the American Revolution. And we also see another issue is the unemployment and inflation. So the unemployment skyrockets in the colonies and the price of goods increase as well. And then lastly, our crop failure, crop failures and disease epidemics. Um, so these are just some of the issues that kind of sparked Mexico to really um, rebel. So the leader for the Mexican Revolution um, was Miguel Hidalgo. Um, so Miguel Hidalgo um, was a parish priest, and he really urged the people of Mexico to stand up and rise against corruption, rise against the Spanish, and fight for the independence of Mexicans and of colonists, um, and create a new country for themselves to kind of emulate America, emulate Latin America, emulate Haiti, France, and stand up for themselves. So what did the followers of Hildago do? Well, they initially attacked the ranchers and and their ranches and their property, the mining systems, and along the way they killed people, of course, like we saw in France. Um, As they're kind of taking power, as they're causing destruction and chaos, um, they're also murdering those people who had once held the most power, um, landowners, Spanish officials, things like that. We also see Jose Morelos. Jose Morelos um, is a student of Hildago, and he is one of the stronger, more um, successful fighters of the Mexico Revolu- Mexican Revolution. 
and he really kind of puts himself out there and I would say he's more like the fighting star rock star of the Mexican Revolution not necessarily the political um, reform rock star like you know how we have in the American Revolution, the framers, and then we have like George Washington. He's more of like the George Washington. He's the fighter, whereas Hildago is more of the um, intellectual portion of the revolution. So we do have Colonel Augustine Iturbide, um, and the event of September 16th. So September 16th is Mexican independence, to be perfectly honest. Um, A lot of people, and by people I mean non-ethnic Mexicans, um, believe that May 5th is Mexico and Independence Day. Cinco de Mayo is Independence Day for Mexico. That is completely false. Um, Cinco de Mayo is the celebration of the defeating of of the French troops um, in a Mexican, um, southern Mexican city. It has nothing to do with independence. September 16th is the independence of Mexico. Um... This is where an alliance is forged of the remaining forces in Mexico and they consolidate their power and they declare their independence. So September 16th is Mexico's Independence Day, not Cinco de Mayo. So not Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. It's not like the 4th of July. No, September 16th is the Independence Day for Mexico. Um, so don't get that confused. So moving on to Brazil, um, and this is around 1830s, 1831. So why did the royal family come to Brazil? So remember, Brazil is a Portuguese colony. The royal family is being pressured in Europe by Napoleon and his forces. So the royal family came to Brazil because they were forced to flee their country. They fled from Napoleon. Um, And why did they go back to Portugal? Well, they went back to Portugal when Napoleon was defeated. Um... And he was going, and they were going back to protect um, their their throne, to protect their right to rule. Pedro the first is a royal. He um, is the next in line for the throne, and his views. Um, he aligned himself with the independence movement that was going on in the colony. He really wanted the support of the people, so he aligned himself with their movement, um, and his goal was to support them in whatever they needed. So why did they not like him, even though he supported the colonists and their independence movement? Well, they didn't like him because they felt Pedro I supported the Portuguese royalty and colonial officials too much instead of supporting the people. Like, they felt that he needed to get rid of all the royal people and all the colonial officials and kind of abdicate himself. Um, But they, they felt he was too... Um, tied down to the royals and the former elite instead of them. So what ended up happening is that um, Pedro basically, you know, falls from power, Pedro I, and his son is reinstituted. So Pedro I abdicates. He kind of understands that he's not popular. So they um, install his son, Pedro II, and he is five years old when he is instated. Um as the new king of Portugal. And why did the people like him and allow him to rule for 58 years? So he was 63 when he 
you know, ended his rule. So he lived a long life, Pedro II. And the reason they liked him is because he was easily manipulated. He did basically whatever he was told. He didn't rock the boat. He didn't do anything um, to spark anger. So it was very beneficial for the Brazilian people. So moving on to constitutional experiments, um, constitutions and the process of creating, um, passing, and implementing a constitution is very long. Was it something that is quickly put together and easy and works in the initial process? No. Um, constitutions have many, many stages. They have many, many rewrites, many, many um, steps in the process to make the constitution perfect and make the constitution, um, you know, successful. We see that in the United States. Um, the United States, their first version of their constitution, if you took AP US, this is a quick reference. Um, was the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation was technically the first um, document, ruling document of the colonies after the revolution, but it was very weak. Um, It gave too much power to the central federal government and um, not enough power to the states, and it was just a weak system, and it was not good. So we see them going back and creating the constitution that we still use today. Um, And we see that, you know, nobody's perfect. No constitution is perfect. Our first constitution as America sucked, so that's why we created a new one. In Venezuela and Chile, for example, they had nine constitutions drafted, rewritten, redrafted, re-signed, all this stuff within 22 years. So you see, it's really about experimentation. It's about creating a document, making sure it has everything that the people need to protect them, to support them, um, everything. And, you know, you need to fix it every now and then. I mean, we fixed and we revised our own um, governing document in this country. So what is the difference in government experience between North America and South America? Well, in North America... Colonists had more experience with voting um, and had more political, I don't want to say political power, but they had more um, advantages and opportunities to practice politics than the South Americans did. South Americans really weren't given a lot of experience in voting or many democratic um, opportunities. So who experienced the voting? Well, in both systems, it was the free um, white males. Um, and sometimes, initially, it was the free white landowning males. So you still there were still restrictions on who could vote. So who was able to vote in the Americas? Not everybody, only free white men. So you had to be male, you had to be free, and you had to be white. Um, in 1867, we see... The British create the Confederation of 1867, and this consisted of um, four territories in Canada, and this was Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. This would be a confederation of powers that kind of work together for the greater good, which eventually will become Canada. 
the Dominion of Canada is just the consolidation of these regions, of these territories in northern North America, and their governing center was Ottawa. So constitutions and the church. We see a lot of pool, um, pulling away from the church um, with these new documents, not necessarily abolishing the church or looking um, completely negative at the church, but it's more of reducing the power of the church. Now we're seeing like the separation of church and state. The church does not have a political pool in many of the newly formed countries. Yes, they have advisors. Yes, they have influence in a way, but they really do not have political power. So their relationship was very difficult to determine. We do see that the military are also limited. So they limit um, limiting the military was hard, but they know that they needed to do it because they didn't want like a militaristic society, but they knew they needed the military. So they were starting to limit that but we do see a pushback from leaders military specifically the more popular military leaders because they did not necessarily want to give up their power um and we see that many of the leaders would that influence later revolutions would change that So moving on to personalist leaders. So personalist leaders are those ones that were kind of the poster children for the revolutions. So why were George Washington's actions important to the Latin American revolution, revolutionary leaders? So why were the things that George Washington said and did and practiced important to those Latin American leaders? Well, because he set a precedent. He was the first to kind of gain leadership through military excellence. Remember, he was the commander of the Continental Army. Um, He was appointed by the Continental Congress to be the commander of the American forces. He was very successful in battle. He was very, very popular. So because of his um, popularity and his success, he gained the presidency and he was the first president. Um, But we also see that he also understood the importance of relinquishing power. Washington was a man who was reluctant to even take the presidency. Um, He didn't want to have that. Initially, he didn't feel he was up for the responsibility of being the first leader of this new nation. Um, He kind of was hesitant about it. Um, He did do it, but he didn't remain even though the people wanted him to for another term and another term and another term he said no this is not a monarchy we are a new country we need to relinquish power one person does not have the right to continue to have power for years and years and years um personalist leaders um relied on their ability to mobilize and direct large groups of people or the masses it was uh, you kind of can i guess associate with like cult personality where they were just just a good person who could do knew what needed to be done for the general good um they could rally people they were very inspiring and all that stuff uh the cadillo the cadillo 
was a leader who gained um, and held political power without constitutional sanction. So they're the ones that gained power in a situation, but it wasn't constitutional. They didn't do it in the proper way that aligned with the the new country's constitution. They kind of just took over. And they were still popular, but they took over without following the rules. We do have another man, Jose Antonio Paez. Um, Paez challenged a lot of constitutional um, issues. He is the Latin American version of Andrew Jackson. So Paez was very difficult in following the constitution, limiting his power, um, he didn't want to limit his authority based on the constitution. He was very popular because he was successful in battle. He was one of the most successful cavalrymen under Bolivar. Um, and he had a very humble background. He was initially uneducated. He came from a poor upbringing. He was kind of like the people's person. So he was very popular, but he was, he was pushing it. Like, it was kind of on the on the verge of military dictatorship in the sense. And why did people support him? Because they saw resemblances of themselves. He represented the common man. Um, he came from a similar uh, humble upbringing. He worked his way to leadership. He was, a good, he was successful in battle. People liked him. Um, we see the same thing with Andrew Jackson, American president. Side note, I hate Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, sorry. He is terrible. He is a horrible, horrible human being. He is one of the worst people in my book. Um, terrible, terrible. But anyway, back to discussion. He's an American president. He was very similar to Paez. He challenged constitutional authority. He challenged, he pushed it. He pushed. He ve- I think he is the president that had the most vetoes in all of American history of vetoing legislation and kind of causing roadblocks for a lot of things. He was terrible. He, he was responsible for many deaths of Native Americans. He was just a terrible, terrible person. Um, very similar to Paez, he had a military background, he came from humble beginnings, um, one of the reasons he was very um, racist towards native populations was because he saw his family massacred by the um, Seminoles in Florida, um, so he had kind of a grudge for against Native Amer- all Native Americans, and so that's why he kind of went after them, but... Why did the people support him? Similar to Paez, humble beginning. He was successful. He was liked. He was popular. He was kind of like the man's man of the presidency. He was just uh, like everybody loved him um, for whatever reason. So moving on to section seven, foreign interventions and regional wars. So this is going to discuss um, reignition or re yeah the reignition of tensions between different areas. Um, why were these wars started? Why were these conflicts created? Well, three reasons: national borders. So that is usually why a lot of conflicts are started. So national borders, the access to natural resources, as well as um, the control of market. So we're definitely seeing economic and political issues at the background of these um, conflicts. 
The first one is the War of 1812. This is American history, so I'm going to go briefly through it. Conflict with the British, so the British and the Americans, um, showed weakness of the New Republic. So the New Republic was weak, didn't have a lot of um, backbone. This is also when James Madison and Dolly Madison were president and first lady. Um, they burned down the White House. D.C. is in chaos. Um, ultimately, the British are kicked out, um, and they do lose. But it is kind of the first experience of the newly formed nation to defend itself and it's and and it's tested it really is a test for the um, america then later on in the 1800s way later on um, we have the spanish-american war this is at the end of the 19th century um this is associated with theodore roosevelt um his rough riders in cuba san juan hill um and it's really the instance where America is expanding imperialistically. Um, We see at the end of the Spanish-American War, um, they gain new colonies, they gain Puerto Rico, they gain Cuba, they gain the Philippines. So they're really becoming an imperialistic empire after this war, after this conflict with the Spanish. We do have the president of Mexico, Benito Juarez. Um, He is forced to flee um, he initially drove out the French in 1867 um, in Mexico, but he is not too popular. He has to flee Mexico um, for his safety. Then, of course, we have Maximilian. He is Austrian, and he is initially put in place as emperor um, in France, but he is not very popular. He ends up fleeing for his life for whatever reason, you know, conflict with the people. Um, He is captured when he flees and he is in prison and he's executed. And then, of course, we have another issue right before the Spanish-American, not right before, but before the Spanish-American War, before the Civil War. Um, This is Texas in 1837. And this is the Mexican-American War. And this is Mexico versus the United States. Um, This is also where we have um, Battle of the Alamo, Santa Ana, this area, as well as at the end of this conflict, um, Mexico is forced to secede territories to the United States. They sign a treaty in 1848 to relinquish these areas. They relinquish California, New Mexico, and Arizona to the United States. And those are new territories that are absorbed into the new country. Moving on to section eight, native peoples and the nation state. So this is really talking about North America and their difficult relationship with the native populations. Um, The settlers versus the the natives lasted a while. Um, It really started when the first British colonists came to the new world. And we're seeing that it continues all the way up until today, really. We do see still conflicts. It's not armed conflicts or actual violent encroachments, but it is still a conflict between Native peoples even today. So initially, we see that the colonists and settlers are just encroaching constantly on Native lands. And this is just escalating tensions between the two groups. The first real instance of violent conflict was um, between the Shawnee leaders, um, in particular Tecumseh. Um, Tecumseh was a Shawnee leader, and he was very 
pragmatic. He organized all the native groups in the region. So this is around Indiana, Ohio, River Valley area. Um, He organizes them against the Americans. Him and his brother do fight against the settlers. Um, In 1812, we see the, the settlers and natives have more issues Um, Specifically in the instance of the War of 1812, the natives do not like the Americans so much that they decide to fight against them with the British. Um, And later on, we do have the movement or the forced removal of Native Americans. And this is under the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Remember the man I hate. Um, The Indian Removal Act is signed in 1830. And it is just forcing the resettlement of Native people, the Cherokees, the Creek, and the Choctaw. Um, Really, the reason behind this is economic. Um, These three groups, the Cherokee, the Creek, and the Choctaw, are originally from eastern um, the United States. Predominantly, Georgia is where they were. Georgia, um, northern Florida region, um, Mississippi, where they originally kind of were settling and lived forever. Well, specifically in Georgia, the region where the Cherokee were at, because remember, Native populations were considered their own kind of nations. They had their own systems. They were different from America. They weren't Americans. They were their own thing. Um, So under Native land in Georgia, under the Cherokee, um, there was gold that was found in their territory and in their land. Um, and that was one of the driving forces to remove the natives, um, the Cherokee, the Creek, the Choctaw from their lands to gain, so the Americans could gain one, the land, more land for settlers, and two, gain whatever monetary gain they could get from the land. So very, very terrible. Um, During this forceful removal, half of the natives died during the journey. This journey then became known as the Trail of Tears. Um, This is the journey from um, Georgia to the west Oklahoma, um, Kansas area where the natives were being resettled, um, forcefully moved out. Go somewhere else. We're going to take your land is basically what happened. Um, We do have General Custer in 1876. I know this is jumping around back and forth through the 1800s, but just hang on with me. So General Custer and the Battle of Little Bighorn. This is about 11 years after the Civil War ends. We do see a rising conflict between natives and the United States from post-Civil War up until the 1900s. Um, Many, many skirmishes. Battle of Little Bighorn, Wounded Knee, um... You, terrible, terrible things happen between these two, these um, in this period. So it's a conflict between the Sioux and the Comanche against the U.S. Army, and it's where eventually Indians are 100% forced to move to reservations. Um, the Battle of Little Bighorn was just a conflict, a skirmish between these two groups. Um, the the Sioux and the Comanche basically kill everybody in Custard's um, little group of soldiers. Everybody's dead. They scalp them. It's terrible. It's seen as a massacre. It's seen as these like barbarian natives are killing everybody. It's very, it's presented in a very negative way for the natives so that the U.S. can get what they want. Um, 
from the natives. So ultimately the U.S. does. They do force the natives onto reservations. um, And it's just not not great. So in the south, in Mexico, we do see similar conflict. um, Specifically in the instance of the caste war. This is where those native Maya um, rebel against the Mexican government for independence. Kind of for autonomy. Greater autonomy amongst themselves. Their lands are getting taken by colonists. Same situation as North America um, or uh, the United States. And this was in 1847. Moving on to the abolition of slavery, which is section 9. Abolitionists in the United States were people who wanted to outlaw slavery. They believed that slavery was both unconstitutional as well as immoral, religiously immoral. So they wanted to outlaw it. You have a lot of um, major abolitionists like Frederick Douglass. You have um, William Lloyd Garrison's, the Grimke sisters, um, Elijah Lovejoy, um, all these individuals who wrote out and spoke out against slavery. In the United States and internationally, slavery ended... Um, specifically internationally, around the 1850s um, in most places. Of course, we still have outliers in the United States um, and in some other colonies, but most colonies outlawed it by the 1580s. Why did some want slavery to continue? Um, Very good question. This is basically based in economics. Slavery was based on the economy. Many of these countries and many of these colonies were slave-based economies meaning they used that labor that free labor to grow their economies An example is the united states and the cotton industry why not continue slavery um well many saw it as um not humanly right it was against those constitutional and independent and enlightenment ideas it was just wrong so i have several people here for do not um write about t weld Abraham Lincoln, of course, um, did Emancipation Proclamation. He freed the slaves. Um, But there's a little bit difference. Yes, the slaves are free, but do they have um, total equality to every other American citizen? No, they did not. So emancipation is only the first step in real equality for African Americans in the United States. Um, Emancipation doesn't cut it. Pedro II um, adopted gradual emancipation, which would eventually lead to complete emancipation in Brazil. Frederick Douglass, of course, he was a former slave. Um, He was one of the most effective abolitionists in the movement. And in the United States, the 13th Amendment abolished um, slavery completely. So there was no more um, slavery within the United States. Um, In Britain, they ended the slave trade in 1807. So this is um, right before um, Queen Victoria comes to power. The slave trade is ended. That does not mean slavery is ended. It's just the slave trade. Um, And slavery is officially abolished under Queen Victoria in 1833, um, three years into her reign. Um, Of course, we have the Caribbean region. Um, of the British Empire where slaves helped propel um, the movement in the Caribbean. So this is Cuba, this is the Caribbean islands, Bahamas, Jamaica, those areas. 
while as in Cuba and Puerto Rico, uh, slavery wasn't abolished until 1873, which is about 12 years, or not 12 years, um, eight years after the United States ended their civil war. So moving on to immigration, who were the immigrants that came most between the years of 1500 to 1700 to the New World? Well, that is mostly predominantly from Europe, specifically Western Europe. Um, In the United States, in the 1830s, we see 600,000 Europeans arrive. Um, And in the years 1840 to 1880, within a 40-year period, we see 9 million new immigrants come to the United States. Um, Between this time, um, a lot of it has to do with issues that are going on in Europe, Russian pogroms of the Jewish population. You have the Chinese um, issues. You also have the Irish potato famine. Um, Just a lot of stuff pushing people as pushing push factors um, to the United States. Now, the United States were also very racist at this time, um, you know, American history. Um, They did have desirable and undesirable immigrants that they wanted in their country or did not want in their country. Um, The desirable immigrants were Europeans. They wanted Europeans, but they predominantly wanted Western Europeans. They wanted Nordic Western Europeans as their immigrants. They wanted Germans. They wanted Austrians. They wanted French. They wanted the British, Irish, uh, the British, Scottish, uh, Welsh, um, Nordic individuals. They did not want Southern or Eastern Europeans. They did not want Jewish people. They did not want Chinese or Asian people. So those were your undesirable Eastern and Southern Europeans. Jewish and Chinese. So when I talk about Eastern and Southern Europeans, I'm talking about um, your uh, Slavic immigrants, your Russian immigrants, your Jewish immigrants, your Italians, your Greek. Um, it's They're very, very um, selective, especially Irish. They did not want Irish either. They saw Irish as inferior, um, as well as the Chinese. They did not want the Chinese um, coming. So what they did was to limit the number of immigrants. So they had a lot of acts that they passed, um, immigration quotas that um, they would not surpass. Like we can only have this many immigrants from this country coming at a time. So they might say, we're only going to allow 500 immigrants from China this year, or we're only going to allow 1,000 immigrants from Ireland this year. So they'd have quotas. Um, And then we have a specific act, the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which eliminated Chinese immigration for a period of time in the United States. We also see that Canada places some restriction on immigration as well um, through the form of head tax. And this is where um, immigration is made more difficult to come into Canada. So if you were coming in, you had to pay a tax um, to come into the country. Um, and many believe that immigrants threaten two things to, you know, civil society. That is the well-being of the native workers um, and the threat of the threat of, of national culture being undermined. Um, when immigrants came to their new country, predominantly United States, many assimilated to. The country, meaning they adopted or adapted to their surroundings. They adopted the culture. They adopted their language. Um, Many people forced their children and forced themselves to speak English in order to fit in. They took um, many similar cultural aspects and made them their own. 
Um, in the education system in the United States, we see a promotion of nat- national culture, um, of patriotism. We see a lot of nationalism um, within the education system and teaching the youth. Um, language was another way that the newly arrived immigrants um, assimilated, which was the creating of a homogenous culture through one language. So the forcing of people to learn English and, um, you know, speak English and give up their um, former languages and former customs. Um, American culture was a consolidation of many different cultures. Um, the general idea of America is that it's a melting pot that we have. America is very unique in the sense that it is not in homogenous culture or a homogenous nation. We have so many different cultures and traditions and beliefs and ideas that kind of accumulate to make one kind one unique experience, one unique nation. So we have so many influences. That's why it's so hard to kind of um, pin down American food. Like, what is American food? American food is anything. Um, could be anything. Um, because the United States has Americanized so many ethnic things or immigrants have come in and Americanized a lot of their food. So that is an American tradition. So if you see, like, for example, Italian, Amer- Italian-American food is similar to Italian food, but it's different. Like Chinese American food is similar to Chinese food, but it's different. It's not um, traditional. It has an American twist. That's why Americanization is different. It's its own thing. So the influence of immigrants on new immigrants. There's two things that immigrants influenced the newly arrived ones. Well, the original immigrants created ethnic neighborhoods. This is where you see Chinatown. This is where you see Little Korea or Little Pakistan. Um, this is where you may see Little Italy, um, the the Jewish quarters in different areas. So these ethnic neighborhoods where people could go and they could still immerse themselves in their culture and their tradition and feel comfortable but still be in America. Um, another way is ethnic community and organizations. So organizations and things that helped to assimilate new immigrants to the predominant culture. A cultural, a cultural, sorry, acculturation is the modification of language, customs, values, and behaviors to fit the dominant culture. So it's where you come in and you're altering yourself and your customs to fit the predominant culture, which would be American culture. Um, learning new language in the United States, when you arrive to your new country of origin, you are urged, and a lot of the times um, you need to learn the language um, in order to improve your station. So improve your earning capacity, improve your um, situation, so you need to be able to speak the language. So there are many effects of immigrants to a nation. Um, some of those include language, um, your dietary practice, new artistic collaboration, and economic policies. So language, um, in the terms of America, or in the example of America, we do see a lot of influence on American language, adopting of ethnic terminology into American um, language. So we do, like, like Spanglish or the combination of a native language and English together to make a hybrid new language, but or taking words from one and using it into the predominant language. 
dietary practices, so new foods, new ways of eating, um, new times of eating, new customs, things like that being adopted by the predominant culture or the dominant culture, um, artistic collaborations, economic policies. Our last section is women's rights and the struggle for social justice. The first women's rights convention was in Seneca Falls, and the meeting happened in New York. And this was just a convention of women coming together to fight for equality for women, right to vote, citizenship, um, greater autonomy in society. So what did women want? They wanted economic independence, they wanted full legal rights, and they wanted the right to vote. Um, Women gained that right in 1920 um, with the passing of the 19th Amendment. Um, Canada actually gained before 1900. Um, and then in Brazil, they would receive, they could receive an education, um, in male professions, but they would not receive the vote till later on. Um, and then Africans in the United States or blacks in the United States were denied the vote. So even though constitutionally they could vote, um, it didn't matter their race. They were denied that through the, um, implementation of Jim Crow in the South. Um, so even though they constitutionally were allowed to vote um, and had that right um, for the 15th amendment they were denied it through restrictions so this is where you see um, like the grandfather clause or um, these ways in which they were barred from voting literacy tests things like that Um, so that is the social issues that were going on in the united states So this is the end of chapter 23. Um, Episode 9 is going to discuss chapter 22, so do not worry about it. Um, And I will get that one on here as soon as possible. Talk to you guys later. Bye.